It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. This is podcast number 198 for June 27th, 2010. Recorded June 25th. This is a program that you will need to visit the TechBiter Worldwide website to make sense of. Just a little warning there in advance. As I tried to decide how to describe the latest version of Photoshop, I found myself thinking about the fable from India in which several blind men attempt to understand an elephant. Was the elephant a wall, a spear, a snake, a fan, a tree, or a rope? The elephant is, of course, like all of these. Similarly, I wondered if Photoshop is a program for photographers, for graphic designers, for website developers, for new media painters, or for motion graphics creators. It is, of course, for all of them. The Adobe Creative Suite is a huge application, and many of the components of the suite are themselves gigantic. If you want to know everything there is to know about Photoshop, you'll need to read at least several very large books and participate in a lot of training exercises. So this review, while it will not be exhaustive, might be exhausting. If you're interested in learning about Photoshop, there are a couple of resources I can recommend heartily. Number one is tv.adobe.com. This is Adobe's own television site. You'll find a lot of good information there. And there is lynda.com. This is a fee-based site, but some episodes of every training program are free for guests to view. These free episodes are identified by underlines on the segment's title. You'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website part of an index of one of the Photoshop training programs. There are several, by the way. Each of them concentrates on a different aspect of Photoshop. The one I show on the TechBiter Worldwide website is by Michael Ninnis. So if you want to learn Photoshop in detail, that's a good place to go. But I'm here just to tell you about what's new and what's really exciting in this new version. High dynamic range, or HDR photography, is now accessible. And by accessible, what I mean is it's now simple enough that even I can figure it out. Because of the limitations of cameras, lenses, film, computers, and paper, we cannot reproduce the same range of shades on paper or on a computer screen that the eye can see. On a sunny day, you might stand in a sunlit forest clearing and look into the adjacent dense forest. Your eyes will see the detail in the area that direct sunlight is reaching, in the shadowed area at the edge of the forest, and in those darker areas that are well inside the forest. In part, this happens because of our persistence of vision. As our eyes move, the pupils adjust to suit our focal point, shift your glance from the sunny area to the forested area, and because your eyes quickly adjust, you believe that you are simultaneously seeing detail in both areas. In fact, you're not. So in addition to the fact that our eye's dynamic range is greater than film or computers, there's also that bit of mental hocus-pocus going on. The camera doesn't work that way. It sees everything at once, and in one brief period, maybe one hundredth 
one five hundredth or one one thousandth of a second. The scene I've just described would require at least three images at different exposures to include all the tonal detail. One image would need to be exposed for the sunny area, another for the shadowed area, and a third for the dark part of the forest. That is, in fact, the concept behind HDR imaging. It seems easy enough. Capture three to seven images and then combine them to create a single final image. It seems easy enough until you try to do it. Besides the difficulty of simply finding a way to combine all those images, there's another potential problem. If your camera wasn't on a tripod, the images won't align properly. And even if the camera was on a tripod, there's another potential problem lurking. If anything in the image moved, say a tree swayed a bit in a breeze, you're going to have trouble with a combined file. That is why I've spent so many futile hours trying to make HDR work only to come away with pitiable, pitiable results. The images you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website come from lynda.com. They are of a California freeway. I opened them in Bridge. One of the images was exposed for the shadows, one for the midtones, and one for the highlights. Now, because this is a freeway, the cars are moving. At least that's what's supposed to happen on freeways. You'll see the obvious problem when you check out the TechBiter Worldwide website. I started in Bridge, where I selected the three images, then I selected Merge to HDR Pro from the menu. That's kind of a magic command. It sends the three images to Photoshop and simultaneously combines them as three layers in a single HDR image. Had these images been shot with a handheld camera, the process would also try to align them. And it is surprisingly good at doing that alignment. I've tried this with handheld shots. It works amazingly well. So when I got to Photoshop, I had three merged images, and I noticed lots of ghost images on the highway. HDR Pro had tried to merge all of the three images. It did its best, but its best wasn't really good enough. In the past, it was hard to get rid of ghosts. Now it's easy. Click Remove Ghosts in the control panel. Then you can choose any of the images to be the winner when ghosts need to be removed. By default, HDR Pro seems to pick the middle image most of the time, but you should examine the other possibilities because you might like the results better. I selected the image exposed for the shadows in my test. And on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you will see the result. This is based on photorealistic settings, so the colors are generally correct, and there is detail in the areas where detail wouldn't be present using any of the three individual images. Photorealistic is just one of the options. There are several others. And after a little additional work on the image, I came away with something that was surprisingly good, considering how quickly I was able to create it. But what if you don't have multiple images? It is, in fact, possible to create a faux HDR effect, using just a single image. You'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website a photo that I took in San Diego around 2003. It's a low-resolution image by today's standards. The train is a light rail system that runs from north of San Diego to San Isidro, which is just across the border from Tijuana. The image was an okay image, maybe a little flat, somewhat blue because of the lighting. I wondered if adding a bit of hyper-realistic HDR effect would make the image more interesting. 
Take a look at it on the preview screen. It's considerably more dramatic now. Gritty. Gritty might be a good description. Whether it's better or not, well, I'll leave that up to you. I've talked about content-aware fill previously. In Photoshop CS4, content-aware scaling was the big wow feature. This time around, it is content-aware fill or content-aware healing. One day on a walk around Antrim Lake, I took a picture of a jogger. At the right edge of the image was a trash barrel. Nice image otherwise, but I really wanted to get rid of the trash barrel. I could have cropped the image to remove it, but I liked the composition the way it was. I could use the clone tool to cover up the barrel, but I knew that that would take at least several minutes, maybe 10 or 15, and the result would probably still be an obvious clone trick. Or I could simply draw a selection, more or less, around the barrel, precision seems to be fairly unimportant, and then choose content-aware fill. Take a look at the two images. Can you tell where the barrel was? If you feel that this should be improved, you can do that with a few additional seconds using the clone tool. But the amount of time you'll need to make those final changes will be minimal. And one of the big changes this time around is the ability to remove noise. If you use a high ISO speed to capture images in a low light situation, the result is often luminance noise, which appears to be gray speckles, and also some color noise, just random dots of color. The image you'll see on the TechBinder Worldwide website displays both of these problems. Earlier Photoshop versions had the ability to reduce noise, but usually at the expense of sharpness. In CS5, reducing both luminance and color noise has improved dramatically. On the TechBinder Worldwide website, you'll see a couple of images. One with noise as it came from the camera, one with noise corrected. They're both at 100%, so it's exactly what the camera saw. The noise reduction is surprising. The resulting normal resolution image, either on screen or in print, will be substantially better after these two types of noise have been tamed. If you are a professional photographer or a serious amateur, you're going to find a lot to like about Photoshop CS5. The bottom line, five cats. If you are serious, you need Photoshop CS5. I remember detesting Photoshop because it had a confusing interface. Over the years, the interface has improved a lot, and the program's capabilities fall only slightly short of outright magic. Last year's content-aware scaling and this year's content-aware fill give photographers the ability to do things that have never before been possible. For more information, visit the Adobe website, and you'll find a link to the Photoshop section of the Adobe website on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Remember film? Every film type had a particular look. Kodachrome was contrasty and yielded bright colors. Ectochrome was more neutral. Fujifilms did a great job with greens. Kodak's Vericolor was the clear choice of most professional photographers. Then came digital photography, and everything was pretty much the same. Alien Skin's exposure was designed to help digital photographers replicate that special film look, and now version 3 is shipping. There's even a 64-bit version for the pros. Tom Welsh, the architect of Exposure, explains it this way. Exposure has grown beyond film simulation into a creativity tool, especially with the addition of lo-fi and vintage effects. 
There is carefully researched science under the hood, but we keep the controls simple so that photographers can focus on their art. This is not a complete review of Exposure 3. I will have that on a later program. This is just a first look. I've been looking at it for less than a week now. Alien Skin says that Exposure 3 in 64-bit CS5 is more than twice as fast as Exposure 2 in CS4 on the Mac and about 30% faster on Windows. Speed is important because, well, because any time spent waiting on a computer is wasted. Exposure makes it possible for you to replicate the look of discontinued films, to perform darkroom tricks without the chemicals, and even to make digital images look like they came from old, low-res cameras like the Holga or the Lomo. Why would you want to do that? Well, you might want to do that because sometimes artistry is accomplished through images that aren't perfect. With Exposure 3, you start with more than 500 defined presets. Exposure 3 includes filters that make your images look like those captured on early Kodachrome. That film dates back to the mid-1930s. On Technicolor, Autochrome, Panatomic X. Oh, remember that great fine-grain black-and-white film, Panatomic X? And even Tech Pan. You can replicate darkroom tricks such as bleach bypass. And effects have been added to create vignettes, dust, and scratches. <laughs> Use those if you really like the retro look. The good news is that if you purchased Exposure 2 in or after April 2010, your upgrade will be free. And you shouldn't need to do anything. Alien Skin will send you upgrade information by email. As for Exposure 3, check back in a couple of weeks. I'll have a full review for you. This week, Google finally announced that anybody who wants a Google Voice phone number can obtain one. There's a lot to like about the program, a few things to dislike, and a fair amount to be concerned about. What's to like? Well, you don't need to remember multiple phone numbers. Give people your Google number, and it will ring one or more of your cell or landline phones when somebody calls. Or if you make international calls, you'll find that they are surprisingly inexpensive. Or if you want to record a conversation, you can do so with a couple of button pushes on your phone. By the way, this is a great feature if you happen to need to record interviews. Or when a call goes to voicemail, Google will transcribe it and send the text to your email account. Or how about this? Google Voice knows who you call. It will integrate with your phone's address book or Google Contacts. Or you can send and receive free text messages. Or you can program Google Voice to send some callers directly to voicemail and to send others to one or more of your phone numbers. What's not to like? Well, the big problem is digital delay. When you're communicating by voice, yeah, that would be a phone call. Does anybody do phone calls anymore? Well, if you're communicating by voice, there is a brief digital delay. It's about a quarter of a second, 250 milliseconds. That can make the call just a bit difficult, but that's really about all. Now, what's to be concerned about? Because you don't have to remember multiple phone numbers, Google knows all of your phone numbers. If you make international calls, Google knows. If you want to record a conversation, you will record it on Google's servers. When a call goes to voicemail, Google transcribes it to one of their servers, sends the text to your email account, and archives it. 
Google Voice knows who you call. You can send and receive free text messages, which can be read and used by Google to serve advertisements. Programming Google Voice to send some of your callers directly to voicemail and others to one or more of your phone numbers gives Google a pretty clear picture of your social network. You may have noticed that most of my points of concern were also listed as advantages. So it's up to you to decide which is which. It is free, but how much privacy are you willing to pay for a free service? If you'd like more information, there's a link to Google's website from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, a bit of irony this week. Warner Brothers has been accused of thievery. That's right, Warner Brothers. One of the big companies that likes to sue people that they feel are pirating the company's movies and music. Well, now another company has sued Warner Brothers, claiming that the big WB is illegally using its software. In all fairness, the case hasn't gone to court yet, and Warner Brothers could easily settle out of court without admitting any thievery. But the irony is rich nonetheless. Median Patent for Waltug, a German company, has filed patent infringement suits against Warner Brothers in the U.S. and in Germany. According to The Hollywood Reporter, MPV claims that it showed Warner Brothers how it could track pirated films back to their source. MPV did this, the complaint says, at Warner's request, and since then, the suit goes on, Warner Brothers has been using the technology without paying for it. The suit was filed in New York's Southern District Court. According to the Courthouse News Service, the inventor, Gerhard Lehman, described the system in intricate detail during a September 2003 confidential meeting with Warner Brothers. One month later, Median says, Warner Brothers asked German film manufacturer T.S. Provide to replicate Lehman's invention. This isn't the first time that something like this has occurred. In 2007, the Motion Picture Association of America's Goon Squad was forced to stop providing a university toolkit. That's what they called it, a university toolkit, because it is based on the Xbuntu operating system, which is licensed under the general public license. The GPL requires anyone who makes a program based on GPL licensed code to release the source code and license it under the GPL. The university toolkit was given to universities so that they could spy on students' communications. Irony atop irony. Well, it seems to me that if you're going to sue people who you feel are illegally using your materials, then you should be uncommonly careful about accidentally misappropriating somebody else's materials. Are you stupid? That may seem like a needlessly offensive question, but if you have a phone that's capable of sending text messages, there seems to be about a 50% chance that you are an idiot. Many of us think that it's teens who do stupid things, such as send text messages while driving. They do this, we adults think, because their minds haven't yet fully developed. So what excuse do we have? As it turns out, about one-third of teens admit to sending text messages while driving. Nearly 50% of adults admit it. If you send or read text messages while you are behind the wheel of a moving vehicle, you are a moron. Sorry to be shouting there, but I'm hoping to get your attention before you kill somebody I know, or kill yourself. 
The survey results are from the Pew Internet and American Life Project. Talking on a cell phone while driving may not be as dangerous as texting while driving, but it's still not a good idea. And according to the survey, nearly half of all teens and adults say they have been a passenger in a car where the driver used a cell phone in a dangerous way. If you are such a passenger, speak up. Tell the moron behind the wheel that he or she is endangering your life and the lives of others. If you think it's not dangerous, consider this. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration says that nearly 5,900 people, that's almost 6,000 people, died. And more than half a million people were injured because some idiot was distracted by a cell phone while driving. 28 states prohibit texting while driving. Now, in a sane world, no state would have to make this illegal because drivers would understand that it's a stupid thing to do. If you own a cell phone that can send or receive text messages, and you must send or receive a text message while you are driving, would you please at least pull over to the side of the road? Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Tech Fighter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.